Good morning, everybody. You can uh, grab your seats. We're in the middle of our series through the book of 2 Corinthians, and uh, that series is called The God of All Comfort. The reason, again, we call it that is because that's what Paul said he wrote the book for. He said, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. And he says, I'm writing to you, remember, Paul's writing because he has written other letters to the church in Corinth, this church that he planted, as he planted churches all over the Roman Empire. And the letters that he wrote before to the church in Corinth were very harsh because they weren't walking with God. They were actually promoting evil. They were causing people to fall away from the faith. It was really bad. And so he wrote letters to them saying, you've got to stop this. Now he's writing this letter because they actually listened. They repented. And Paul hears about it from Titus, who travels to visit him. And he's like, oh my goodness, I'm so comforted by God and the ministry he's allowed me to do and by these people who actually followed God and repented instead of just doing whatever they want. And so Paul's now writing this second letter saying, man, thank you. I'm, I'm just so encouraged and I want you to be encouraged by what God is doing, not just in you, but in all the churches and how he's working in the world. And so you've got to keep that perspective when you dive into the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, as we come to the end of the book, we're in the end chapters. Today, we'll be at the end of chapter 10 and beginning of chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn in 2 Corinthians and kind of be right there at chapter 11. At the end, Paul has written them. He's so happy about how they've repented. He's happy about how they've changed. But he's warning now in the last few chapters, he says, look, this change that's happening, you have an enemy that is not liking this change. He does not want people to repent. He does not want people to believe in God. He doesn't want people to believe in his word. And so be ready. There are going to be, and there already are, a lot of false teachers, false prophets, false pastors, people who are coming in to purposely deceive you from doing what you know is right, from doing what you've already been told in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, some of which were probably written by that time, and in the letters from Peter, James, Paul, that had been written and circulated among the churches, and these deceivers are going to come in. And so these last few chapters, Paul's saying, hey, you're doing a great job, but watch out. Watch out, because there's an enemy who's crafty, and he's not just going to come in like Halloween with pitchforks and horns, and you're going to be like, oh, that's a demon. That's, that looks bad. He's going to come in, we'll see this morning, as an angel of light. He's going to you know, kind of um, put on deception and say, hey, I'm one of you. And in reality, he's not. So we pick up our, our story this morning. Last week, we talked about boasting and commending. We're going to read right at the end of chapter 10 on that. And then this morning, we're going to be talking about godly jealousy. Godly jealousy. Have you ever thought of the word jealousy positively? Because you should. The Bible is absolutely clear. We're going to see some verses this morning where God says over and over and over, New Testament, Old Testament, epistles, gospels, prophets, you name it. He says over and over, I am a jealous God. Jealous God. I am a jealous lover. And we think, well, can that be good? That sounds kind of bad. Because, see, we love the attributes of God that sound nice. We don't like the attributes of God that are difficult. 
but are still who he is. Because see, every emotion you have, every emotion I have, come from God. The difference is what the object of our emotion is. See, when God has jealousy, he's not jealous selfishly because God can't be selfish because he's God. (laughs) He's it. He's everything. There's no selfishness in him because he's the ultimate, right? It's us that look at God and say, no, we don't want to give you your rightful place as creator. We won't want to give you your rightful place is God. So we are going to be envious and jealous. Envy and jealousy are the kind of the same word used throughout scriptures when you look them up. They're, they're, it's, it's the same coin, two sides. You begin to be envious of someone and then the emotion of jealousy comes from that envy that you have. And it is so destructive. But when that jealousy is for God and when God's jealousy is for his people, it's so amazing. And so that's what we're going to look at and dive into this morning. And there are people that are running around promoting false comfort. They're telling you to be jealous for what other people have. I mean, that's marketing in our culture today. Look at what they have. Don't you want it? Look at how they feel. Don't you want to feel that way? Look how skinny they are. Don't you want to be skinny? It's it's everything. It's be envious, be jealous of all the things of this world Meantime, God's in heaven going, uh, how about me? How about you be jealous for me? How about you be jealous for the church and my people instead of just for yourself and those that are in your camp that you like? That's exactly what the false prophets that Paul's going to talk about go into because God wants us to be jealous. The problem is, if you're honest, you want someone to be jealous for you, but you don't want it to be God. All of us long for someone that will be jealous for just us. That's why we want to be married. That's why we want to be in relationships. I want someone that's going to be there for me, just me. And God's in heaven going like, so I'm not enough? You got to have somebody else to fill the void? Not that he doesn't provide us people, but the question is, are we going after that person because we do not believe the jealousy of God for us and our jealousy for him, so we're trying to insert an idol. And all through scripture, we're going to look this morning, God says that you'll find his jealousy when you move to idolatry. Every time. He will expose it because he loves you and he is jealous for you. He longs to have an intimate relationship with you that is between you and him, and then you extend that jealousy for him to other people because you love them and because you want them to be jealous for God, not jealous for an idol, not jealous for another relationship, not jealous for another job, another church, but jealous for him. And that's exactly what the false prophets of our day do. You see, we want somewhere, someone to be there for us, but we don't want to believe that there's a God who's always there for us so that we can then give ourselves to be there for others. We can surrender ourselves to God and his bride, the church, because we've been given everything. There's nothing that I should envy or be jealous of because I have God. So, so that doesn't mean we shouldn't be married. God says it's a good thing to find a wife. It's a good thing to find a man and a man who wants to be an overseer and, and lead. That those are good qualities. But why? Why? Why do you want that? Because everybody else has it? Because 
You think that person's actually going to help you be jealous for the God of the universe or because you don't feel like God's jealous for you, so you're looking for someone who will be jealous for you? And that's really the question of our day. It's the same lies that Satan has told for all of eternity. So let's dive into our passage. 2 Corinthians 10. We're going to start in verse 17. He says, so the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. We talked about that last week. Boasting isn't bad. It just depends on what the object of your boasting is. He says, for it's not the one commending himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends. I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. Yes, do put up with me. I love that. (laughs) Could could you just put up with me? (laughs) For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his his cunning, your minds may be corrupted from a complete and pure devotion to to Christ. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Now I consider myself in no way inferior to the super apostles. Though untrained in public speaking, I am certainly not untrained in knowledge. Indeed, we have always made it made that clear to you in everything? Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by taking pay from them to minister to you. When I was present with you and in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. I have kept myself and will keep myself from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped." in the regions of Acacia. Why? Because don't I love you? Because, oh wait, because I don't love you? God knows I do. But I will continue to do what I'm doing in order to cut off the opportunity of those who want an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in what they are boasting about. For such people are false apostles. They're deceitful workers. They're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, For Satan himself disguised as an angel of light. So it is of no great thing if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their destiny will be according to their works. So let's break this down. Paul has ministered to this church. He sent people to minister. He just came back and got the offerings from them. He now talks about boasting and boasting in the Lord which we talked about last week and commending ourselves. So we pick up 2 Corinthians 10, 17, and it says, So the one who boasts must boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends. You see, we love to be boasted about and commended. We talked about this last week. We love it. We love pats on the back, right? And it's not wrong to... Boast. Paul says he's boasting about the Corinthian church and their repentance. He's boasting about the Macedonians. Paul says, I've boasted about you, but not about you, but God's work in you. The testimony of what he's done. And he says, look, everybody's out there trying to commend themselves and boast about themselves to get you to trust them. That's the point. They give you credentials. They lay them all out. See, look at all my credentials. You can trust me. And Paul in this passage is saying, 
I came to you with no credentials, right? Like I came empty. So did the apostles, he said, what we're going to look at in a second. And so it's like, look, when people are commending themselves, Paul's like, I'm going to have to talk about myself a little bit because these people are undermining what's really the things we should commend ourselves for. And they're, they're highlighting, they're lifting up the things we shouldn't commend ourselves for or boast about. He's like, we should boast, we should commend, but it should be for the glory of God. And instead, we're boasting and commending about ourselves. And Paul lays that out and he says, look, it's not the one who commends himself, but the one the Lord commends. So do we know Christ? If you know Christ, the Bible says that you have a new identity. You are a new person. That there are, there are promises, there are things about you that God says, this is true of you now. Not because you feel it, not because you know it, but because I've said it. And I'm God. And so you commend yourself to this book. You commend yourself to, yes, what God says is true. But you have to be careful because if we're honest, most of us, we so love to hear commendation that we will go towards those who give us commendation and push ourselves away from those who challenge us. And you see, there were people in the church who were doing this with Paul. Paul wrote two hard letters. And there were people that were saying, see, Paul's mean. If he really loved you, he wouldn't say it that way. If he really loved you, he wouldn't be so mean about this sin or that sin or anything else. See, we love you. We care about you. We're here. He left. He didn't stay with you. Like there's all these lies that are being spoken of. And Paul's like, well, am I not of God or not? Like you have to call me out. At the end of this, we see he says they're deceitful. Like he calls them out as sons of their father, the devil, basically, like Jesus does. He doesn't hold back. But in our culture, we're taught to hold back. You can't make those kind of judgments. Well, I'm not trying to make those judgments, but I want to commend what God commends, and I want to boast about what God boasts about. And I'm not going to allow the boasting and the commending that isn't of God. I'm going to confront that, because I love God and I love people, Paul says. Look at what Luke says. Jesus said it this way, Woe to you when people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. We love it when people tell us everything's going to be okay. We love to tell our kids that everything's going to be okay, sweetie. It may not be okay. I mean, I, I'll always be there for you. I never told my kids that. I'm like, I won't always be there for you. Jesus will. I won't. Sorry. I'm one person. can be in one place. God may kill me and take me home to be with him, which would be awesome. Right? But... I can't always be there for you. Like, we, we say these platitudes, we say these words because we think they bring comfort to people, but in reality, we're causing jealousy. Because if I tell my kids, I'm going to always be there for you, God promises that I'll raise you, and then I die, what's their attitude going to be towards God and towards people who didn't lose their fathers? Envy and jealousy. Because I didn't give them the truth. I gave them a platitude. I gave them a temporary comfort. I didn't tell them the truth about what God says in his word. We've, we've got to speak the truth in love. Romans says this, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you've learned. This is Paul writing to another church in Rome. He says, avoid them, because such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting, look at this, with smooth talk and flattering words. We love someone who can speak well. Paul says in this passage, I don't speak well. I'm a terrible speaker. I mean, he, 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 
had someone fall asleep. If you read the book of Acts, someone fell asleep in his preaching, fell out of a window and died because his preaching was so bad. And he went out and resurrected them. And instead of stopping preaching, he just continued to preach badly. Like if you were there, you'd be like, Paul, you already put someone to sleep and they died. It was cool that you resurrected them. Could we like be done now? Like you're horrible. Like if that isn't proof, you shouldn't be preaching. I don't know what is. And Paul just keeps going on. See, we love to be deceived because we love to have our flesh and our emotions served. We love to have our emotions and flesh pleased so we feel comfort. But it's not a deep abiding comfort. It's a temporary surface comfort that goes away in an instant and can easily be provoked, as he's talking about here, to envy and jealousy. Because God, why did you take my comfort away? Remember the prophet Jonah, right? He gives the worst sermon ever, like literally goes into a city, doesn't care about the people, wants them dead, tells God, I want him dead, but I'll tell what you have to tell because God kills him, brings him back to life to make him go tell the people. Like it's, it's a, he goes into Nineveh and he's basically like, my God is God and he's gonna kill you all, goodbye, and walks out. That's his message. That's it. And they repent. And Jonah climbs up on a mountain because he's hoping that they won't repent and that God will send down fire and annihilate all of them. He's so envious, so jealous of the Assyrians. I want them dead. God's trying to save them. And he's like, now he's pouting because God didn't kill his enemies, right? Now he doesn't have comfort. He's like, now I'm going to be known as the prophet who saved bad people. Ugh, I wanted them dead, right? And what happens? God gives him a little shade tree. The shade tree... God kills the comfort of the shade. Now Jonah's in the heat and he's like, this is stupid. God, you, I hate you because you took away my little shade tree. It's basically Jonah's heart towards God. I just didn't rain down fire on an entire city and people group and you're mad that I burned up a plant. If that isn't our hearts when it comes to comfort, if that isn't God's jealousy that he wants people to repent, he wants them to know him. And we're just concerned that our plant got taken. Just like Jonah. And God still uses it. Isn't that a miracle? Still uses idiots like us. Praise the Lord. He goes on says this, he says, I wish you would put up with a little foolishness for me. Yes, do put up with me. I love that. Isn't that great in relationships? When someone looks at you and goes, would you just put up, put up with me? I know I'm fool. I know. Like, I'm, I know who I am. You know who I am. Just put up with me for a minute here as I kind of talk to you. Like, that's a beautiful thing in relationships where you recognize, I'm not God. I'm not standing before you as God. I'm standing before you as foolish Paul, as foolish Matt. Like, it's, that's who I am. I'm trying to represent God, but just hold on for a second. And he's not talking about the foolishness or stupid nonsense, because what he does is he talks about his ministry. He's trying to say, look, I don't even want to talk about me, but I have to, I have to, because what the false apostles are doing is they're attacking the pastors who bring you comfort. They're attacking the church. They're not giving you a true sense of what godly jealousy looks like, and they're undermining the jealousy I have for you, Paul says. And so he says, I wish you would put up with a little foolishness for me. Yes, do put up with me, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. This means that human beings, you and me, can have godly jealousy. If Paul can have it, I can have it. He's no better than me. He's no better than you. 
So what does it mean to have godly jealousy? Because anytime I think of jealousy, it's most of the time, it's I'm jealous and I'm envious because I'm evil and I want something that God isn't ready to prepare to give me and I'm mad about it. That's really. So what does godly jealousy look like? Well, Paul's getting ready to break that down, but he's like, look, I'm going to have to walk you through some of this. And it's going to sound foolish because I'm going to kind of have to brag about the way we've done things. But the reason I want to talk to you about the way that I planted this church, the way that we've done ministry, the way that we've set things up, the choices that we made, is not because I'm telling you that we're better, that that the Corinthian church is better than this church or that church. It's you've got to understand that everything we did was out of a heart of godly jealousy for the people of God to present, as we read earlier, a pure, spotless virgin for Christ. That's what Paul's writing. That's his jealousy. It's not, I'm jealous for you to believe me and believe I'm right and our church is right. No, no, no. This is bigger than that. This is about God. This is about the bridegroom Christ and his marriage to the church, the bride he's going to have one day. This is the ultimate picture that we see in Revelation of no longer any jealousy or strife or pain, but the beauty of a relationship that is forever. Deuteronomy says this, so what does jealousy look like? Deuteronomy says, be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. And make an idol for yourselves in the shape of anything he has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Do not make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters or underneath the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I didn't write the book. He says, I'm a jealous God. I am, I am jealously. Now, false jealousy is always selfish. It's concerned about their feelings. Godly jealousy is he's the God of the universe. We should all be concerned about what he feels, about what he says is right. And that's what Paul is concerned. He's got this jealousy for them to want to understand what this relationship with God looks like. And when he writes them the other two letters, he's confronting their idolatry. And you can always spot your idolatry because When you read the Bible and it says something you don't like and your heart kind of raises up within you to fight it, welcome to envy and jealousy. You found it. You found your idol. You found your idol. Oh, uh, yeah, there's an idol, right? You got, you found it. Let's deal with it. Let's go. And we're like, no, I don't want to deal with it. See, God is looking and he's saying, look, over and over again, when you see these verses, it's always connected to idolatry. Because when we start to have the feeling of jealousy and envy, the question is, what's the object? What's the object? And most of the time when we start to get jealous or angry at God or envious of others or whatever it is, that's our idol. We found it. You see this the most in relationships in our culture. You see this the most at people who are so angry that other people have found someone to be with and they're going to be married, and they're going to, and, and I don't have someone, right? Or we find it in, no one's good enough for me, I'm not going to be with anyone because I'm so awesome, because you're so jealous about yourself and envious of how awesome you are, and you can't give yourself to anyone else fully. It is the number one idol. It's why Jesus said, he who doesn't hate mother and father and brother and sister and even wife because of me, in one of the versions, 
isn't fit to be my disciple. And you say, well, how can hate? Because your love for them should look like hatred compared to your love for me. That doesn't mean you hate them. It just means that they're not the one I'm trying to please. I'm not going to be jealous about the things they have or don't have. I'm going to be jealous for God. Look at what he goes on to say in Deuteronomy. They provoked his jealousy with foreign gods. Again, idolatry. They enraged him with detestable practices. Because once you get an idol, then you start structuring your life to obtain or hold on to that idol. Because you won't give it up. Because I'm jealous for it. I'm envious of it. It's mine. God's like, just let me have it. Nope, mine. It's like a two-year-old, mine, mine. No, it's not yours. And you're about one foot nothing and I'm six foot. I'm gonna teach you that you lose. Rip it out of their hands, right? And do they, do they ever respond like, oh, thank you. I was being so selfish. No, they throw a tantrum. They scream and yell. They kick and fight right in front of you. Like this is a skittle. Like that's all this is. And I told you that you could have a Skittle, you just needed to wait, but you took it early. So now I'm holding the Skittle that's yours promised anyway. It's, it's your Skittle, but I'm not going to give it to you yet. And you're throwing a fit like the world's ending. Over a Skittle. But we do the same thing with little things in our lives. Because again, God's not enough. I got to have more, I got to have more, I got to have more. We're jealous for everything. Something's going to bring me comfort. Something else is going to bring me comfort. And we can't just find it in him. So what does he say he's going to do? They have provoked my jealousy with their so-called gods. They've enraged me with their worthless idols. So I will provoke their jealousy with inferior people. I will enrage them with a foolish nation. You know how many times God raised up other nations to punish his people in scripture over and over again? Why? So that they would see that they can't hold on to the Skittle. It's mine. I gave you the Skittle. I can take the Skittle away. Now you still have the promise. You're going to get the Skittle one day. It's yours. It's already been promised. But you've got to wait on me to deliver when it's time. And instead, they go into those nations. They're mad at God. But eventually, after a while, they start crying out to God and saying, God, you are who you say you are. We have been jealous for the wrong things. We need your deliverance. And all of a sudden, it starts to change like this passage of Scripture that Jay read earlier. This is how God works. And the reason God works this way is because this is the only way we respond. When things are going well, we don't think we might be wrong. We automatically think when things are going well, we're doing it right. And when someone comes into our life and says, I don't know if you're doing it right. Well, who are you to tell, tell me I'm doing it wrong? Everything's working fine. Look at my budget. Look at my relationship. I'm, I got a schedule. It's perfect. Well, maybe you're worshiping your schedule instead of God. Can God interrupt your schedule or do you get mad when God interrupts your schedule? How dare you, God? I prayed about this and I planned this and how dare you mess with my life? I'm God. That's why I mess with your life. Because you think you are God and you made a nice little cute schedule for yourself that doesn't fit what I want. And you're finding comfort in the schedule, not comfort in me. And I'm just tired of it. So I'm going to take the schedule away for a little while so we can have a conversation. And you can get jealous about me again. Like God is so kind to have that kind of a relationship with us. And he provokes us. He literally says, I've got to provoke you because you won't learn any other way. James says this, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? 
You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. You don't have because you don't ask. And you say, I have to ask. I've asked over and over again, God, for this thing, and you haven't given it to me. Well, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. <laughs> yeah, I ask, God. Yeah, and, and your attitude you just gave me when I told you you don't ask properly was, oh, that just shows that you don't ask with the right motives. Because a proper ask would be, God, this is what I would like. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to entrust myself to you, but, but your will be done. Because that's what Jesus prayed. Jesus said, this is what I'd like to have happen, God, and, but your will be done. Your will be done. I don't want to have to pay the price on the cross and, and feel that separation and that sin and go through that emotion and that flesh, that death of flesh that's real for humans. But not my will, not my fleshly will, not the will that the enemy wants, but your will be done, God. Because I can trust you because I know there's a resurrection. I know that there's new life. I know that this isn't the end of the game. James goes on to say, if you have this kind of attitude, look at the word he uses, adulteresses. It's amazing to me how God always uses the relationship component and always talks about adultery and, and uh, idolatry in the same sentence all the way through Scripture. They're so closely linked. Idolatry and adultery. Because adultery says I need to go out and get something because the one I'm with isn't providing for me. That's the basic of adultery. And God is like, I've provided everything for you. Now I'm asking you to wait. Can you wait? Well, I have waited. I've waited a year, 10 years, five years, three years. I've waited, I've waited. And? I've been waiting for thousands of years not to destroy all of you because of my great love and my patience. I am a jealous God and I want to bring wrath, but I want more to see people find the comfort that I offer them in a relationship with me. So I withhold my jealous wrath to extend you my loving grace, he says. And then he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend, you want to be commended and boast on you. You want to get the things of the world, he says, is God's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason? The scriptures say that the spirit who lives in us, look at this, yearns jealously. That when God gives us his Holy Spirit, there is a jealousness that the spirit of God is warring against the things of the world in our lives. And we wonder why there's a battle going on. Because you're jealous for the wrong things and God's trying to get you jealous for him. To stand for him in 1 Corinthians, in Paul's, one of Paul's other letters he wrote, he says this, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Paul knows the scriptures. He knows that when we start doing idolatry, we're, pro we're, pro we're poking the bear. Like he's just poking the bear. It's going to bite you. Stop it. Like he's going to defend his ground. <laughs> He's a bear. <laughs> God is bigger than a bear. Quit poking him and being like, I want to see how far I can push God. Don't do that. People who do that get eaten by bears. Don't be eaten. Don't, don't be consumed by God that way. And then he says, are we stronger than he is? You think you're going to win this battle? You really think you're going to go to God and say, God, this is my want. This is what you should do. This is what I should have. You really think you're going to win that? He says, you're not going to win. 
It's a losing battle. And then he says, everything, I love this, everything is permissible, but not everything is helpful. See, if we know Christ, we have his grace. We don't work to earn salvation. We don't work to get in good with God. God says he loves us, not because of our works, but because of his work that we're trusting in. But when we stop trusting in his work and doing our own, what happens is we stop looking at God's law, his ways, his patience, us waiting, jealousy for him, we stop looking at that as the thing that, we, that is beneficial and we start going, well, yeah, that's of some benefit, but oh, those things, those really benefit me. And you know what, God, God loves me. I can sin, I have grace, it's no big deal. I can take a little bit of that, a little bit of that, a little bit, and God understands because I'm human, right? And then you don't expect God to be jealous for you? Like, you don't expect a husband to be jealous for a wife and she's going to the bars every Friday and Saturday night and she says, well, I haven't committed adultery. I'm not, I'm not sleeping with anyone. And he sees pictures and she's dancing and grinding up against people. You don't expect him to be jealous? You don't expect him to, like, show up at the bar and cause a scene? God's much, much bigger than a jealous husband. You don't think he's going to cause a scene in your life? He's not going to show up and say, this has got to stop. Sure, it's permissible. You're my wife. But it is not beneficial to me, you, our children, or anybody else that's watching for the glory of God Almighty. This stops now. This has got to stop. That is loving. That is jealousy for God. Now, can it turn into legalism? Yeah, when you want someone to stop because it's not benefiting you, because you're mad at them. No, 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 this is about God. Not about your feelings and your emotions. This is bigger than that. And he says, everything's permissible, but not everything builds up. No one should seek his own good, but the good of the other person. See, godly jealousy always looks to what does God want and what does God say he wants for man, for people. Okay, then that's what he wants for me. And that's what he wants me to tell people. And that's what he wants me to tell him over and over again. That he's good, that he, he's right. Like that's the process, Paul says. But instead, we're running around like the Corinthians were and we're causing jealousy because we're running around. He writes about this in, second, in 1 Corinthians just a couple of chapters later that you think you can eat whatever you want and offend your brother. He's like, if it offends your brother, just don't eat. Don't eat that. It's okay. You can eat it in private. Just don't, don't like stick it in his face. Well, I can do this because I've been saved and I've got Jesus and who are you to tell me I can't? What? What kind of an attitude is that in a relationship? Like, why aren't we looking and saying, well, are, are they doing something sinful? No, it's just a personal preference. And God allows us personal preferences in Scripture. And so, I, but I don't want to offend them. I'm not trying to be right. I want to love them. I want to care for them. Listen, if something causes your brother to sin and stumble, give you an example. Don't invite me to play golf. I will not play golf with you. You want to know why? Golf causes me to stumble. I, I say things in my head I should not say. It, it is a bad game for Matt Shockney. It is not a good game for me. I get so frustrated. I'm mad. I want to throw clubs. It, it shows all the evil in my heart. And I'm like, you know, the best thing to do is avoid golf. Now, does that change my heart completely? Nope. Still got to deal with the heart, which is why I'm telling you this, so you can pray for me so I can deal with my heart. 
but I'm not going to throw myself into golf, spend tons of money on the game, buying clubs and doing all of it because that I can't afford anyway because I want to give it away. I'm not against golf. If you can do golf to the glory of God, praise God. I can't. So if you invite me to play golf, I'm going to tell you, no, probably. But maybe, just maybe, God every once in a while might want me to play golf and surrender myself to you so that I change my heart, right? And I learn that it's not just about me denying things, but sometimes I have to do things I don't want to do and say, dear Lord, please help me not hit anyone with this club today. And that's the struggle that we have for being jealous for God. Look at what Proverbs says. Proverbs says this, a tranquil heart is life to the body. Look at this. But jealousy and envy is rottenness to the bones. A tranquil heart, a heart that finds its jealousy and its joy and its peace and all the emotions in Christ. It's like, okay, God's got this. He's God. But the person who is constantly jealous and envy, you're, listen, it is going to rot you. It will rot you because you're keeping an idol. That thing that you're jealous or envious about is going to kill you. Don't keep it. Put it to the side. But if you can find the tranquility of the Spirit of God, walking with God, surrendering to Christ, man, it's so beautiful. Listen, nothing is more devastating than for someone to say to you, you don't love or care for me when you've loved and cared for them. There is nothing that brings more rottenness to your bones than when someone looks at you and says, you don't love me, you don't care for me, when you've really tried to love and care for them the best that you could. It's also the same way, it's to say that I chose not to like or care for you anymore, even though you have cared for me because I found a better person that's cared for me. There's nothing more painful, rotten than that. Or do whatever you want because I just want you to like me and care for me so you can do whatever you want to me. There's nothing more rotten than that. Because all three of those things, the focus is on who? You. Me. It's not on Christ. And God is like, and Paul's like, I want a godly jealousy. He goes on to say this, for I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy because, look at this, because. So Paul answers the question. He's like, I've been boasting, I've commending, I'm jealous. And you think, can you be jealous? And he goes, well, wait, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. See, now this verse gets lost because we don't understand marriage anymore. We have so messed up marriage. We, we are a disaster in our culture. So you have to remember, in this day, it was arranged marriage, right? You didn't get much of a choice. You got some choice, but not a lot. It was about inviting the people of God into your life to select your spouse, not I pick them and then I bring them home and everybody has to be happy with it. That is not biblical. Biblical Christianity is you invite them to the people of God so that they can look at the process, ask questions. There can be a preparing process because there are deceivers out there and you need people who will help you ask the questions because you are just so in love and there's you know blinders on your eyes to all their faults that you need other people in, their, in your life to go, uh, hey, I just don't see that in them. Well, then you're blind. It's there. Are you ready to, are you prepared to deal with that? And Paul's like, look, I want to, I want to present you. Here's the deal. In this day, when two people were betrothed, that was the same as marriage and it required a divorce once you were engaged. 
and betrothed to one another. It required a formal certificate of divorce. Because once you give your yes, your yes is yes, your no is no. It's done. And in this day, there would be people assigned on both sides of the family, a person, a bridesmaid, and a bride and, and a best man, a bridegroom, who would hold the bride and the groom accountable and keep watch out to make sure they were being prepared and betrothed for their covenant, sometimes for decades. The best man and the maid of honor were not just there to stand with you. No, 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 no. They were there for 10 years to say, you can't look at that boy. You can't look at that woman. You're betrothed. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. You see this in the book of Song of Solomon, right? You see in Song of Solomon that the men, and the, they, would, they would whisk the woman away. They'd whisk the man away when they were in the middle of that tension of, uh-oh, we're going to mess up. And they would pull them away from each other. That's how it was set up. Paul's like, I'm that guy to you. And I want all of you to be that for one another because we are so easily deceived. We so want someone to be jealous for us. And I, don't, I want you to know that my jealousy isn't for you to be mine. It's for you to be Christ's. I want you to be pure and ready for him to come get you because he's the ultimate groom. And when he shows up, I want you to be like, here I am. Not like, oh, I got to hide, which is what they did in the Garden of Eden. They went and hid because they knew they weren't prepared to meet God. And Paul's like, I want you to be prepared. I, I want you to get yourself ready. I want you to have people around you that won't let you go down the road of breaking the betrothal. Because they love you and they love the other family, the other person. You're not going to break this betrothal. Not unless there's serious accusations and problems that then we have to bring everybody together and talk about and figure out a solution. That's why divorce, God hates divorce. He can't stand divorce. Does that mean people who are divorced can't be saved? No. Murderers can be saved. <laughs> Anyone can be saved. But but God says, man, don't do this. It, it so tells people what's not true about me. Look at what Malachi says. And this is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning. Don't we do that? Oh, God, I, mean, I want you. I'm so sorry. Blah, 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 blah. We love to show emotional response to God. And then he says, Because he, has, he no longer respects your offerings and receives them gladly from your hands. And because he doesn't do that, you feel this distance from him, yet you ask, for what reason? God, why aren't you listening to me? Why aren't you giving me what I want? Why, 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 why? And what does the one seek? Look at this. Godly offspring. See, here's our problem in almost all relationships. Most of us get together in relationships and the purpose of getting together isn't about someone else, it's about us. It's not about the bride of Christ and his church. It's not about creating a family and having kids. I mean, matter of fact, we tell people today they don't have kids. They're too expensive. We are so constantly trying to get together because we think there's something that we don't have instead of saying we have everything and if two of us come together, we have everything to make what? Godly offspring. Sperm, egg, whatever. Now, can some people not have children? Absolutely, which is why God says there's a whole world full of spiritual children you can adopt, you can pour into, you can give your life to, and you can make not physical offspring, godly offspring the rest of your life. 
and they will thank you. They will come back and say, you weren't my biological mother. You weren't my biological father like Paul was with Timothy. But man, did you make me into a godly offspring. And now that's going to pay off for my kids and their kids and whoever else comes in. Like Paul's like, the reason you're weeping and mourning is because you're trying to get something from yourself instead of saying, I'm weeping for the nation. I'm weeping for everyone who doesn't know God. I am so broken and I'm giving sacrifices, not so I can get in good with God, but so that hopefully by my sacrifice, no one else is killed. Isn't that what Job did? Job was constantly offering sacrifices for his whole family, not for himself, for his family. Because he was afraid maybe one of them might have sinned and I don't want anyone to be hurt. I don't want anyone to experience the wrath of God. How ungodly offspring. Is that your heart? Are you so jealous like Paul for godly offspring? That you're leveraging your life for that? You're, you're giving your life to raise up godly men and women? Because that's what he says in Malachi. He says, you don't want godly offspring. That's why God's distant from you. And then he says, so watch yourselves carefully. Do not act treacherously, look at this, act treacherously against the wife of your youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garments with injustice, says the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord of armies. He doesn't refer to him like the Lord of love. He's like the Lord of armies. And then he says, therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. Don't abandon the wife of your youth. When you come to Christ, you are now a part of the bride of Christ. You are a part of a bride. You're a hand, you're a finger, you're an ear. You are a part of a bride that's being put together to be presented to Christ. That's your first wife. Paul is clear. The scriptures are clear on that. Sometimes, often, God will give you a second wife. He never gave Paul one. Paul chose to be single. But he will give you a second wife who is in submission to the first wife. And if you don't see that in someone's life, run. Fast. Like, Run away. You need someone who's going to pull you back and not let you act treacherously against the bride of Christ. Second Corinthians, Paul goes on. He goes, but, you know, I want to present you pure, but I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, your mind may be seduced from a complete and pure devotion to Christ. Remember the lies of Eve, right? You won't die. It's no big deal. God will still love you. Did God really say that? right? Twists it all up, like making her jealous for this fruit instead of jealous to hear from God. She's jealous to hear from the serpent and the knowledge he offers, not God. Isn't it amazing that it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? We are still chasing knowledge today, thinking that it will save us. And you know what happens? We, it just makes us worse. We're like, oh, nuclear power, that's going to save the world. Oh, wait, but it can also be a bomb, like thousands of bombs that we can literally incinerate the world on our own. We're so smart. Every earthly solution we come up with has a flip side that is our destruction every time. There is no solution outside of Christ Jesus. The only perpetual energy source we're ever going to find is when Christ comes back. And he says he's going to be our light. He's going to be the source forever. That's the only one. You can try to find one. That's great. But there are going to be major consequences when you find it. 
to the other side. And he says, look, don't be seduced. Don't, don't listen and be like, ooh, that sounds good. Oh, yeah, because you're going to provoke God's jealousy. And then he says this, verse 4, this is talking to Adam. For if a person comes to you, Adam, i.e. your wife Eve comes to you and says, hey, Adam, I ate this fruit. Would you like some fruit? The Bible says Adam was there with her. We're not sure what that means. Was he standing there watching it all happen? Was he kind of around the garden and was like, oh, look, she's talking to a snake. I, we don't know. Was, was it that he ate, she ate the fruit and then she found him and now she's with him and gave it to him? We're not sure. I think he was probably there the whole time. I think he wanted to eat the fruit the whole time. And he was like, I want to see if she dies. Because that fits my heart totally. Probably yours too, right? And so instead of standing up, smacking the serpent, taking the fruit away and saying, we got to go talk to God. We got to find out what's going on here. There's a talking snake. There's fruit we're not supposed to eat. I need to go ask God. No, it's like, no, let's just eat it. Like we wanted that all the time. Let, let's take that in. <laughs> he says, so if anyone comes to you, like the came to Adam and preaches another Jesus, did God really say, is Jesus really God? which you had not received, or a different gospel, a good news. Oh, this is the good news. This fruit will give you the really good news. The rest of the world that's been created for you, all the fruit of the world that's for you and only you, there's no animals trying to eat you. This entire earth has been created for you. But this one little tree right here, oh, that, yeah, that's, that's the good news right there. You take that, you're going to find the best news ever. And we still fall for it. And then it says... Were a different gospel which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Just like Adam. You're not trying to present Eve to Jesus. You didn't take Eve and say, we got to go talk to Jesus. You've sinned and I'm not going to participate in that sin. We need to go confess now. I want you to be saved and maybe, maybe he will spare you. He could have gone to Jesus in the garden and said, I'll take her place. She has sinned. I'll die in her place. Boy, that would have been the gospel and instead, Adam's like, I want what she's got. It's jealousy and envy all over again. And you put up with it splendidly. Jeremiah says this, should I not punish them for these things? This is the Lord's declaration. Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? An appalling, horrible thing has taken place in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own authority. This is so true in our land. My people love it like this. But what will you do at the end of it? The reason that we aren't an independent church, I mean, we are legally, but the reason we choose to partner with other people, we're still an independent church, like an, a, a separate marriage, but we want to partner with a bigger family is because of this. I, I don't want to be the authority over this church. I am not the authority over this church. Christ is. And I partner with other people so that if I ever lose my mind, you know people you can go to. The White River Baptist Association, the State Convention of Baptists. You can appeal to the Southern Baptist Convention nationally and get me thrown. You, you, you can do all of that. You can keep appealing because I'm connected. These pastors that are out there on their own authority, I'm not saying they're not godly. Maybe they just don't understand. I just can't do that. That scares the bejeebers out of me because I am not that holy. I need people. I need partnership because I know people like those really in control, they got it all together guys and they'll buy their books and they'll give them money and they'll do all that stuff. I don't ever want to become that. And so we structure a lot of things in our church 
so that we don't become that. Paul goes on to say this, my son, or Proverbs says this, my son, pay attention to my wisdom, listen closely to my understanding, so that you may maintain discernment and your lips safeguard knowledge. Though the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey and her words are smoother than oil, in the end she's as bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps head straight for Sheol. She doesn't consider the path of life, she doesn't know her ways are unstable. Let your fountain be blessed, that's offspring. That's what that means. Your fountain be blessed. He's talking to a man finding a wife. It's a very sexual imagery. It's supposed to be. Just letting you know. And then he says, and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. And if you don't do that, he says, you will die because there is no discipline in your life. And then he says, and be lost because of your great stupidity. See, we love Proverbs 31. This is Proverbs 35 that talks about the wicked woman before it talks about the godly woman. And the whole book of Proverbs is not an accident. The whole book of Proverbs is referred to as a she or a her all the way through the book. Wisdom is called a she or a her all the way through the book of Proverbs. Why? Because God knows how men get trapped the most easy through a woman. So do you want to chase God and his wisdom or... And do you want to chase a godly woman and the wisdom that she can bring and bring offspring and to a nation and a help? Or do you want to choose a wicked woman? It's your choice. And that's what Proverbs lays out. It's the whole book. That's the purpose of the book and why it's being written. We think it's just to give us some nice little tidbits of information so we have a successful life. It's not. Wisdom is a her. God chose to refer to wisdom as a her. So if you think, if you're married and you're like, yeah, my wife is so much smarter than me, she's probably a godly woman. She's probably a Proverbs 31 woman, not a Proverbs 5 woman. Goes on and says this, Matthew, if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah over here, don't believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders and lead astray, if possible, even the elect, those that are fully saved in Christ. Take note, I've told you this in advance. <laughs> I'm just warning you in advance, this is going to happen. Then Paul goes on to say this. That was Jesus speaking, and then he goes on, now consider myself in no way inferior to the super apostles, though untrained in public speaking, I'm certainly not untrained in knowledge. Indeed, we've always made that clear to you and everything. I love this. Paul's like, look, I have to defend myself a little bit here, right? I don't consider myself inferior to these super apostles, but, and I know that I'm untrained. In other words, he doesn't have formal training in religious theology. Like he's got theology training, but not in like church planting like the disciples were with Jesus for three and a third years. Paul didn't have that. He's like, I wasn't trained like that. And he says, look, I wasn't untrained in knowledge though. And we like, yeah, you weren't. That's why we have all his books. That's why we have all these letters. It's because Paul's like, I wasn't untrained in knowledge. No, you weren't. You gave us a lot of great knowledge. Thank you very much, Paul. Right? But he was a terrible public speaker. Terrible. It says it multiple times in the scriptures. And then he says, indeed, we've always made this clear to you. Paul's like, I've written how many times about myself that, I don't, that I'm not good at? Like, how many times have I told you all my weaknesses? Like, how many times do I, I, I'm not trying to hide anything. But yet these other guys are always telling you all the great things they do and the great things you can have. They're not talking to you about their weaknesses and serving in their weaknesses and asking you to hold them accountable in their weaknesses. No, they act like they've got it all under control. Paul's like, be very careful 
about that. Acts 4 says this, There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to people and we must be saved by it. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated, untrained men, they were amazed and recognized they had been with Jesus. (laughs) Do people recognize you've been with Jesus and been with his bride? Or do you pull out your credentials and be like, I have a doctorate in theology, you need to listen to me. Paul doesn't do that. Paul's like, look at my life, observe my life, look at how we've lived, look at how we've tried to plant churches, look at what we've done, and if you see anything that doesn't match up, confront me. Most of the prophets of the Old Testament did not have right formal training. Isaiah was like, I'm a man of unclean lips. Jeremiah's like, I can't speak. Moses, I can't speak either. Jonah's like, I don't want to do this. Like all of them were horrible wrecks. You think God can't use you? Like God has a jealousy for you. He has a jealousy to produce godly offspring through your life. Don't sell him short. Just because you're not formally like you think you should be. He goes on to say, or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you free of charge? See, Paul would preach the gospel to the Corinthians free of charge. In other churches, he would take money. Paul was a tent maker when he was in Corinth. He worked another job. All of our staff have, other, have worked other jobs before. Up until May, I worked another job. In May, I decided to no longer work another job through the counsel of the church and talking through things. Right? Like, we don't want to be a burden. We, we want to preach the gospel free of charge. Not like, it's not, but here's the deal. It's not wrong. Now, you have to remember, at this time, people were telling people, Paul's preaching the gospel free of charge. Here's why. Because he's trying to seduce you. He's trying to make it look like he's all giving and wonderful, but behind the scenes, he's a snake. And we just come in as these these apostles, these self-appointed apostles, and we show you in Scripture that this is the temple of God. This is the church. You're supposed to give to it, and we're supposed to take, just like the temple of God in the Old Testament, because that's what the Old Testament says. And so you need to do it, and Paul's not doing that. He's disobeying the temple structure. He's disobeying the Old Testament and taking the tithe for himself. See, you shouldn't listen to Paul. You should listen to us. The flip side can be either way. And here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. In other words, pay your pastors, pay people that are serving. But then he says, is God really concerned with oxen? Like, is this about the ox? Is God looking down from heaven and being like, poor ox? No, he's trying to make a spiritual example. And he says, or isn't it really saying for us? Yes, this is written for us because he who plows ought to plow in hope and he who threshes should do so in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, so is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even have it more? However, we have not made use of this right, Paul says. Instead, we endure everything so that we might not hinder the gospel of Christ. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. So should I get paid or not get paid? I don't know. Why don't you ask God? Why don't you ask God's people? Why don't you trust them with your life? Well, no, we got a system. It's how it's supposed to work. You do this, then you do this. And you... How about... How about the system might be different? Like in our church, we've had pastors paid differently. We've had pastors that have raised support to be on our staff, which Paul says earlier, right? That he stole from the other churches. We're going to see that in just a second. We have pastors that work full-time and we pay a little bit on the side. 
We've had pastors, me, who've been paid full-time since the beginning and then given the freedom to work a side job, to make connections into the community and earn some college money for my kids. We as a church have these conversations and work through this mess unlike the people that were coming into Paul's church and accusing of anybody who does that stuff, they're not doing it right. Look, I don't know if we're doing it right. I just know how I don't want to do it. I don't want to be a burden on the church. And number one, I do not want to be a burden to missions. We give 15% of every dollar that comes in the church. And if we can no longer do that and pay our staff, then I need to go get a job so we can go make godly offspring. Period. I know that sounds radical. I know Jason doesn't agree with me sometimes when I say that publicly. But me and him have gone to the table a couple of times during budget conversations on this. Jason's like, I want to take care of you. You're my pastor. And I look at him and go, I don't want to be a burden. And you're, you're, you're a part of my flock. Like, we're, no, we're, we're like duking it out. One time we made two budgets, a 10% budget and a 15% budget. I'm like, we're presenting the 15. He's like, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know. I'm like, well, then it doesn't work. We'll figure it out about halfway through the year. It'll become clear. We made plans. Guess what? God provided. We both laughed at ourselves. Like we had these conversations. Look what God did through his people. Like we, that's how it should work. But you won't find that in churches today. I'm just telling you, you won't. It's very rare. You'll find it a few times, but very rarely. And you haven't even been taught to ask these questions that Paul is saying they need to ask. Paul says, I robbed other churches by taking pay from them to minister to you. <laughs> like he calls it robbery. I love that. He's like, yep, that's what I'm doing. And then he says, look at this. When I was pr present with you and in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. He doesn't say I just did without. He's like, I found my needs provided for in another way. And then he says, I have kept myself and will keep myself from burdening you in any way. See, that's the heart of someone who's jealous for God, who wants to present a pure spotless bride. It's not about him. It's about the bride. It's not about me, it's about my wife and my children and the godly offspring that they can produce. Like my wife can produce more godly offspring without me. I can't very easily. <laughs> she has a womb. God can supernaturally cause her to produce offspring. Like Mary, probably won't happen, but he could. He didn't put a, woman, he didn't put a womb in a man, he put something in a woman to have a spiritual child. So, man, we should give ourselves to the bride, Paul says. 2 Corinthians, he goes on and says, As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Acacia. I'm going to keep boasting about what God is doing and about how we've done ministry. Why? Because, because I don't love you. God knows I love you. I'm not being critical of you and boasting about them. I'm just telling you, I'm going to talk about what God is doing. But I will continue to do what I'm doing in order to deny the opportunity of those who want an opportunity to be regarded just as our equals in what they boast about. This is where the rubber meets the road as we wrap up. Listen, this is where the rubber meets the road. What do you boast about, he says. These guys are boasting about all their accomplishments and all the good things you can have if you follow them. All these things. And Paul is saying, no, they're suffering in the gospel. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've been... That's the gospel. And they're like, oh, I don't like Paul's gospel. Let's go with this guy's gospel. Like Paul's just openly laying these things out. He's like, I boast about those things. I boast about the fact I got shipwrecked and I reached a bunch of people because of it. It was awesome. 
And I was still, and, and the offering was preserved. I was still able to give the offering. So the offering didn't get taken or stolen or go to the bottom of the sea. Paul's like, that's amazing. He didn't say, oh, I shouldn't talk about the shipwreck because that was a really hard time. Like, no, he, he's, what are we boasting about? We love to boast about things that work out well because we know the world will flatter us for that and they'll want that. We don't want to boast about the hard things that God has put in us through that has changed us. That's what we should boast about. His sovereignty, his will, his jealousy for me and you and his bride, the church. And see, these people want to be regarded as equals. They're trying to climb the ladder. That's modern ministry today. You start out as a youth pastor, then you become an associate pastor, then you become a senior pastor, then you get your doctorate so you can go and be in a seminary or something big. Listen, I'm not against any of those things, but I do not chase it. Just let God bring it to you. Be a faithful youth pastor as long as he's called you to be a faithful youth pastor. But we've got this model of chasing and, and you've got to get these degrees. No, just be a faithful husband to a bride. Let him provide the offspring. Quit looking to go get some offspring for yourself. Let him give it as you're faithful. He says, look at this. For such people who act like this and think like this are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder. For Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is of no great thing if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. What do you expect? What do you expect he's going to do? This is what he does. He says, Jesus' name, Jesus' name. Satan can speak Jesus' name. He knows it. Doesn't bother him one bit. He's not going to submit to it. He's not going to surrender to it. He's going to speak blasphemy of it. Man, we don't need to be like that. We need to be people that just get everything out into the light and talk about our struggles and invite people in and to pray for us and help us and challenge us. That's what Paul's saying, man. I, I want you to be jealous for God, not jealous for other things. I want you to envy, like, becoming his, not envy the things of this world, he says. And if we don't do that, he goes, we're going to twist it. So what does this look like, these false prophets? Well, let me lay this out for you in a few verses. They say this, Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for three years, I never stopped warning each of you. Never stopped warning, night and day, I didn't warn each of you, with tears. And now I commit to you, God, and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. And Paul says, I have not coveted. I've not lived with envy and jealousy. I've not coveted. I just want you to be presented. I never stopped warning you because there are people that are so envious, so jealous, so coveting, and they're, they're, they're causing you to be part of that. I'm going to fight it. He's writing this to the church in Ephesus. Okay? Like, fight this covetousness. Look what happens to the church in Ephesus in Revelation. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be liars. They did what Paul said? Paul in Acts prays that they would be this way, and they do it. And you're like, yes, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. You left your first wife. You've abandoned the wife of your youth. You're doing it for the wrong reasons. You got another person, another jealousy you're chasing. It's not for God. So yeah, you're standing up to all these things. You're doing what the Bible says to do, but your heart is for you. 
It's not for God, and it's not for his bride. Timothy says this, for the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. We get tired, don't we, of hearing the same things over again? So we start wanting to hear something new. Welcome to the Garden of Eden. This fruit's getting old. We've eaten all the fruit in this garden. We know what it all tastes like. But that tree, I'm not sure about what that tree tastes like. I mean, God made it. It's good. Everything's good. So it's our heart to a T. Same exact heart. And we want to hear what we want to hear. Paul wraps up and he says, here's how you'll know their destiny will be according to their works. You know what's great? Our destiny is not according to our works. Our destiny is according to Christ's works for us. He wasn't the evil husband who was just in it for himself. He was the husband who laid down his life for his bride. He gave everything. He let us crucify him, every one of us, so that he could show us that even if you're that wicked, even if you're that jealous and envious and selfish of God, I can still resurrect you. I can save you if you'll turn to me. These guys, they're going to be judged for their works. And they won't have Christ holding back the wrath of God. 1 John 9 says, Dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to to determine if they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Do you know how to test the spirits? Do you know this book well enough? Because the spirit of truth always leads us to the truth. That's what the Bible says. Do you know this book? Because if you don't, you're going to be, the spirits are going to get you. They've got a lot more experience than you do at deceiving people. A lot more. You need a lot of help to know this book. And you need people that believe this, not just believe parts of it. They won't rewrite it, but we'll, we'll dig into it and deal with the hard parts and, and be humble enough to say, I may not know, I could be wrong, but here's what I think and here's why. Those are the teachers that you need walking through, not people who are so confident in their own beliefs that they can't allow God to have control over his beliefs. Matthew says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They always come looking like sheep. They don't come with a pitchfork. And then he says, but inwardly they're ravaging wolves. Wait, wait. When they got you alone, they're going to eat you. They're going to gobble you up. They are going to gobble you. And it is going to hurt so badly. You're going to be ripped apart. And then he says, you'll recognize them by their fruit, their works, their fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Matthew says, therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones. Resurrection. You're not saved by your works. You're not saved by what someone else did. You are saved because you believe that you're worthy of death because of your sin. And God says, I will raise you up from the dust. Second Peter 2. But there were also a false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who, brought, who bought them. And they will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their unrestrained ways, and the way of truth will be blasphemy because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with deceptive words. Are they greedy? Is it about money? Do they say, don't worry about that sin, it's no big deal? Or are they for a godly jealousy for you because they love you? Not because 
They're legalists and think that if you don't sin, then you get saved. No, 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 no. It's because they so love God, they don't want you to hurt God, and they don't want you to hurt other people because they want godly offspring. Is that the heart? And then he goes on in Romans, Paul says, but now since you've been liberated from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the end is eternal life. The process of sanctification is our fruit. You know what the process of sanctification is? Death to ourselves, living to Christ. That's how we're sanctified. He makes us right. He burns away, gets rid of the the mess. He kills the flesh and gives us new flesh, new life. Hebrews 12, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. Are you jealous for the fruit of God? What is that fruit? Jesus says, I'm the true vine and my father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and prunes every branch that produces fruit so it will produce more fruit. You're being pruned if you're in Christ. You've already been clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine so neither can you unless you remain in me. So step one, if you want to have a godly jealousy, stay connected to the vine of Christ and his word. Step one. Step two, allow the Holy Spirit to do this. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good, faith, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You can be as jealous for love as you want. You can be as jealous for peace as you want. You can be as jealous for self-control as you want, as long as it's focused on God, not some other result you want. And then he says... Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit, connected to the vine. We must not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. There's the jealousy. Paul's like, here's the fruit of the Spirit, but you're going to be jealous. You're going to be envious when you see the fruit of the Spirit in other people's lives. Don't do it. Don't do it. Surrender the Spirit, surrender your heart to Him and let Him produce the fruit, he says. Why? Because Paul says, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I've promised you in marriage to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. Let me ask you, do you know Christ? Have you surrendered once and for all to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been betrothed to him and you're like, I'm not looking for another Messiah. I'm not looking for another Savior. You're enough and your people are enough If you haven't done that, you need to. Otherwise, the envy is going to cause bitterness in you like we read in Proverbs and is going to ruin you inside. Don't let that happen. Find your contentment and your peace in Christ. He will forgive you. He will forgive you. Why? Because he jealously wants to present you as his bride. He's not looking to Like, he does the work. We participate in the work of calling one another to be like Paul is, jealous for one another. I pray that for our church. I pray that for other believers that we know, that we would correct them and be kind to them, but but teach them because we're jealous for God's church, his bride. For those of us who are believers, let me ask you, would you be able to say, like Paul, 
that you have a godly jealousy for God and his church. If you can't, maybe just start praying that he would give you that. That you would put down the idols, you'd put down the things you were chasing, and you'd be just as zealous and jealous for the things of God as you are for all the things of the world. Does God know our needs? Absolutely he does. He asks us to come to him with our desires and our needs. But can I just encourage you? There is a God who loves you so much, he calls the relationship that he has with you the most intimate relation on the face of the planet, which is a husband and a wife becoming one flesh. He says, I want that kind of intimacy with you. Wow. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for your jealousy. I thank you that you are a jealous God for your people and that you don't take second place because you know if you do, then the offspring that will be produced will be wicked, terrible, selfish. They'll rip one another apart, tear one another apart, instead of worshiping you. And Lord, that's the story we see in Scripture. We see seasons of your people being ripped apart, ripping one another apart, not for godliness, but for their own selfish desires. Lord, help us to be willing, like you were, to be ripped apart for godliness, for godly jealousy. Help us to not have idols in our life that provoke your jealousy, but help us to know that you are the one that is jealous for us, which is what we really long for if we're honest deep down inside in our hearts, someone to be jealous for us, and you are. So Lord, if anyone here doesn't know you, I pray they would surrender to you today. And for those of us who do, I pray that we would have a godly jealousy for you and your word and your people. Lord, help us to not have idols. Help us to discern the difference between a true prophet of yours and a false prophet, a prophet that is for godly jealousy and a prophet that is trying to provoke us to jealousy and envy of the things around us. Help us not to promise more than you promise and help us not to promise less than you promise. And we trust you in your name, amen.